It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, I just want to thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come before you and study your word. Thank you, Lord God, for being a gracious God, for being kind to us, for being merciful to us, Lord God, for, um, Lord, just uh, showing us your glory, showing us your beauty, uh, showing us the manifold wisdom of your grace, how you have called us from uh, eons, Lord God, before time began, and how you have brought us into your kingdom and how you've established us by your word, by your power, uh, by your spirit, O oh Lord, how you lead us daily. Uh, Lord, as we make decisions day by day by day, moment by moment, how we need you, Lord, how we need your guidance, how we need your wisdom. So we're thankful, Lord, that we have your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. So Lord, as we spend some time looking at the life of Moses here in the Hall of Faith, we pray that you would speak, that you would show us those areas in our lives, Lord God, that you are challenging us, uh, how you are equipping us, Lord God, how you are uh, bringing us to crossroads so that we can make the right choice. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title for today is Pro-Choice. Oh, yeah, I want to see everybody's reaction there. Pro-choice, examples in the life of Moses of a faith of choice. That's really wordy. I apologize, but again, that's the title. Um, Pro-choice, examples in the life of Moses of a faith of choice. This is uh, taken from Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, We're going to be ambitious today. We're going to cover more than one verse. Uh, We're going to cover from verse 23 through 28. Let me know, Phil, if I... Okay, all right. And... um, So let's go ahead and read that. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And so as we journey into this passage, I would like to read um, uh, some poetry, if you don't mind. Um, It's a poem by one of my favorite writers, uh, a man by the name of Robert Frost. It's called The Road Not Taken. It says, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, 
though as for that passing there, had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And so as we um, get into this passage, I, I, what I want to frame this, this conversation, this, this, this time in God's word, what, the way I want to frame it is that uh, what we see in Moses' life is a series of decisions, a series of crossroads uh, where one could make a decision that would lead down one path or, or another path. And, and, and what pulls these together, what ties them together, uh, as we see in Hebrews chapter 11, are these are decisions that were made by faith. So let's start with uh, his early life, verses 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So we have to uh, take a step back and kind of try and figure out what the actual context was. And so in Exodus chapter 1, um, we see that uh, at the end of Genesis chapter 50, we, we see the, the 12 sons of, of Jacob. They're reunited. We talked about that last time uh, and how there's this uh, God had given Moses or sorry, God had given Abraham this prophecy back in Genesis chapter 12 about how he was going to bring uh, his people out of the land. Uh, and so here we are in Exodus chapter one at the beginning of all this. And it says that 70 souls in verse five came out of Canaan. And so we have 70 souls, the establishment of God's promise, uh, 70 individuals, so 70 people. And verse 6 says, And Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Just as a footnote, um, there's a lot of controversy as to how many people actually came out of the Exodus. Um, and uh, some people say, well, the, the numbers are skewed. Uh, there was no way it could have been uh, roughly, we kind of estimate 2.4 million people came out of the Exodus. Uh, the reason we get to that point is because uh, later on in Exodus, uh, we find specifically um, that in, in, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, specifically we find that God tells Moses to conduct a census. And when he conducts a census, at the end, the total number, it's 600. Uh, 603,550, 600, for some reason I can't, uh, yeah, use numbers, whatever, but 603,550 individuals. And so a uh, conservative estimate, these were, uh, basically these were men who were above the age of 20 that were able to do warfare. And so what you would then do is you would say, well, for every man, there's, uh, there's four other people uh, when you think about uh, women, you think about uh, children, uh, you think about older men. And so conservative estimates are about anywhere from 2 to 2.4 million. And, and the thing about that is, just like I said, as a quick aside, is just to see how over these 400 years, how over these generations, God greatly multiplied his people, which is in keeping in line with the promise that God gave to Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars in the heavens. 
Another promise that God gave to Abraham regarding his descendants was that it would be like the sand on the seashore. In other words, Abraham would have so many descendants, you couldn't count them. And so uh, some estimates are, well, only about 30 to 50,000 people came out, but that's really not in keeping with what God had promised Abraham. So um, to think about this, 2.4 million people around about, uh, it's a staggering sum, uh, it's a staggering number, but it's just another example of God keeping his promises. And so uh, along those lines, the importance of, of multiplying and, and, and adding to Abraham's posterity, uh, we, we, have a different, we have another context for this verse. Verse 23, uh, Moses was born. Moses was the youngest of, uh, of three children. We know his older brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam. His parents' names were uh, Amram and Jochebed. And, and around this time, getting back to the context, it, it says that there was a new Pharaoh who arose who didn't know Joseph. And this Pharaoh looked upon the children of Israel and he said, you know what? If, if these children, if these people continue to multiply, if we ever go to war, they're going to support the other side. And so in the context of 2.4 million people, obviously, well, it's what's coming out of the Exodus, but seeing that number as it's growing, you can kind of see and understand his concern. And so what does he do in Exodus chapter 1? Um, it goes on in verse 10, Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it should come to pass when there falls out any war, they join also into our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And I want you to hold on to that passage because a lot of times the church, or especially here in America, we're afraid of persecution. We have comfortable lives. And so anything that comes along that might potentially upset that, that comfort, anything that comes along and says, hey, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you out of a place uh, where things are at ease, and we recognize and say, no, we don't want this, this is persecution, uh, we get fearful, we get afraid, but I want you to see what, they, what God says right here. Verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And God does something in our afflictions. There's something he does in our faith. There's somehow, some way, shape, or form. I don't know the mechanisms for how God does it, but he grows us in our walk. He grows us in our faith the more afflictions come. And so that's why we have that promise in Isaiah, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. We know that because no matter what the enemy tries to do, God will take that and he will use it for our good. He will use, a, use it to grow our faith. He will use it to grow our walk and our relationship with him. And therefore, that's why we can rejoice in afflictions. That's why we can rejoice in persecution. When we see it coming, we can say, you know, praise the Lord. God, you have counted me worthy for this test. And so um, that's a very encouraging word. And so they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And verse 13, the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they served was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name was one was 
Shipra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. What are they trying to do? They're trying to eliminate all of the males from this population. They want to eliminate the potential that the men of Israel can rise up and fight. They want to take away the strength of Israel. And so they say, but the midwives, verse 17, feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively. That's fun. And delivered ere the midwives come into them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied waxed very mightily. Sorry, I'm reading for King James, so therefore you're going to get a lot of these and thous. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses, and Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save. And so here we are. Here we are in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Once again, by faith when he was born, He was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's command. What was the king's command? The king's command was that every boy that is born should be tossed into the Nile River. Every son, eliminate him. You can keep the daughters, but I don't want you having any male children. And so it comes to pass as um, Amram and Jochebed, as they are um, celebrating um, the, the, the news that she is pregnant again. They, they have Aaron. They have Miriam. Uh, this was before the king's command. Uh, and now they have this new child. And, and now it comes out uh, them saying, hey, by the way, if that child, Jacobet, that you're carrying is a boy, you cannot save him. But if it's a girl, it's okay. And so now you have the parents of Moses. They're at a crossroad. Right, and and I don't think, I don't think they had gender reveal parties like we do today. Um, congratulations to the Briggs. We just found out they're having a, a grandson, but they didn't know. Right, you don't know until the child is born, and so think about what was going through their mind, wondering, well, if we have a girl, we won't have to worry about this edict from the king. But if we have a boy, what happens if we have a boy? What do we do if we have a boy? And God begins to work on their hearts. God begins to work on them. God begins to show them something that they hadn't seen. Because as they are coming up to the day of birth, and as he's born, it says that they saw a proper child. Not that Moses came out speaking the king's English, holding his pinky up whenever he took a drink or something like that. But rather, they saw something beautiful about him. In fact, it says that he was a goodly child. That that word good, we recognize that word tov. It means uh, it's the same word that we see uh, when God describes the works of his creation in Genesis chapter 1, where he said it is good. They saw that this child, there was something good about him. There was something pleasant about him. There was something excellent about him. There was something valuable about him. There was something that in their minds, in their spirits said, you know what? This is a child worth saving. They looked upon him. They did not see a burden. 
Oh, it's another mouth to feed. They did not see a problem. Oh, this is going to bring difficulties to us because of Pharaoh's decree. But they saw an excellent child, a beautiful child, a child given to them by the creator. And so here they are at this crossroad. They have a choice to make. They can make a choice that is a safe choice that would keep them in the good graces of Pharaoh, that would align them with what Pharaoh has decreed, that would also be following what other people, no doubt, are also doing in their communities because they fear Pharaoh. They're slaves to to Egypt, and they don't want their task to be greater. They could make the safe choice, or they could make the choice of faith. And so what do they do? They hide him for three months. They put him in a basket. They apply pitch around this basket. Makes the basket waterproof. And they cover him. And they send him down a river. And it says that Jochebed sent Miriam. And Miriam followed this basket. Until this basket ended up in the eyesight and the grasp of Pharaoh's daughter. And we know the rest of the story. Uh, Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, she pulls this baby out of the water and she calls him Moshe, which means drawn out of the water. We technically don't really know his Hebrew name. That's an Egyptian name. But it means Moshe, Moshe, she's, because she's drawn him out of the water and she makes him a prince of Egypt. And she raises him, she educates him, she uh, lifts him up, she celebrates him. And think about what God did in this moment of criticality, this crisis of decision. God says, I will reward your faith if you trust me. I will do something you never expected if you trust me. But God, the, the king said we need to kill him. Trust me. But God, it's another mouth to feed. Trust me. But God, we're just, I mean, we're supposed to do this. You know, we've been ordered to do this by, by our king and our government. God says, trust me. Trust me. My mom, several years ago, had a crisis of decision. She was 19, she was pregnant with a child. The father was not in a picture. There was no support from her family. She was advised, get rid of the child. You need to have an abortion. You're too young. You've got the rest of your life ahead of you. You have no way of supporting him. What are you going to do? She trusted the Lord. She says, no, I feel like God is calling me to bring this child into this world. And had my mom not made that decision, I would not be here today. And so when we think about abortion, we think about uh, life, life beginning in the womb. We have to make sure we are walking in grace because there are many people out there who are at that same crossroad. Many women who are scared, many young girls who are trying to figure out what, what should they do. There's no support. The family is against him. And that as a church, guys, that's where we have an opportunity to step in. That's where we have an opportunity to to help, to, to love on them, to show them the value of the life that God has placed in them. Not to condemn, not to make them feel horrible about themselves, but to say, you know what, we love you and we love the life that God has placed in you and we want to be there and help you. So we have to be the hands and feet, guys. 
we have to be the extension of the love of Christ. But I love this in verse 23 because you see, you can kind of see all the wheels that are turning, all the conflict, and they chose at the end, you know what? We have a choice, and we're going to make this choice. And what happened? They brought into this world the Savior of their people. God used Moses, and God used him just that he's was just as he was drawn out of the water, God used Moses to bring the people through the Red Sea. God used Moses to bring these people out of this, this land of bondage and slavery and into the land of promise. I also want to point out that there is an analog here. Um, Pharaoh is an analog of Herod. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 and 18, you'll see in verse 16, it says, Then Pharaoh, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You see, Pharaoh becomes sort of an analog of Herod to come. This idea of we don't want God's deliverer to be born. So let's do everything we possibly can to eliminate God's appointed deliverer. In this case, Moses was God's appointed deliverer, the one that he would use to bring his people out of Egypt. But we also see how Moses is a type of Jesus, just as Pharaoh is a type of Herod. Because Herod sees and understands by the wise men, the counsel of the wise men, that the Messiah has been born. And we see here in Matthew chapter 2, he orders all of the male children to be killed, who were two years and under. Why? Well, no doubt he was influenced by the enemy. He was influenced by Satan and the demonic forces. Because ultimately, remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual principalities and and powers of wickedness and, and heavenly places. What are we wrestling against? We're wrestling against an enemy that did not want to see the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the one who would take away our sins, born into this world, the same one that was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. And so uh, way back when, we see the enemy moving on the heart of Pharaoh to eliminate the possibility of God's anointed uh, uh, Savior or the man that he would use. And now we see in Matthew chapter 2, the same spirit was working in Herod. So just as Moses escaped death at the order of Pharaoh, we see that Jesus escaped death at the hands of of Herod. You know what's ironic about all that, though? Where does Jesus go to escape Herod? Where did his parents take him? Egypt. Isn't that funny? Kind of cool. I think, okay, sorry. I I geek out at stuff like that, so it's just kind of funny. In fact, the Bible says, out of Egypt have I called my son. One of the prophecies there. So let's move on. Move on to verse 24 through uh, the next section, verse 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, 
refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. So as we now move on to the next section, having talked about uh, the crisis of belief of his parents, now Moses also has a crisis of belief as well, a crisis of faith, a choice that he has to make. And so he's being raised as a prince of Egypt. He's being raised in the court of Pharaoh. All of the privileges are bestowed upon him. Education, privilege, um, opportunities, abounding. Um, riches, glory, fame, all these things are given to him. They're right there for him to take. But it says here that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But wait, who was his mom? Who raised him? Well, that's a great question. It's kind of a trick question. Because if we go back to the account of him being born, we see that uh, as Pharaoh's daughter has pulled him from the river, his sister says, hey, do you need a nurse? Because if you do, I know someone who can be his nurse. And so Pharaoh's sister, I'm sorry, uh, Moses' sister basically arranges so that Moses' birth mom, Jochebed, actually becomes his wet nurse. And so uh, legally, at least in the eyes of Egypt, he was the daughter of Pharaoh. But guess who spent time with him day after day? Three o'clock in the morning when he's crying, hungry. Guess who spent time with him? When his, do they have diapers back then? What do they have back then? Like, you know, baby cloth, loincloths, whatever you want to call it. You know, pampers, like papyrus pampers or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Guess who changed his papyrus pampers? Yeah, we'll say that. I like that. Jochebed. Think about the bonding between a mom and her child. Who had that? Jochebed, isn't God amazing? God restored what they thought they were going to lose. And God did it in such a way that not only is she raising her child, but someone else is paying all the bills. Right? That's awesome. Someone gets to pay for my kids to eat. Someone pays for it. I mean, I would appreciate that. That's pretty cool. But the most important thing that he needed Not just food, not just clothes, not just an education, but the most important thing that he needed, the love of a mother and the knowledge of the Holy One of Israel. She was there for And God made sure she was there for So as he's sitting on her lap, as as he's growing up as a toddler, as he's growing up as a little boy and stuff like that, Jochebed is there and she's telling him the stories of their people. She's telling him about their God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's hearing these things. She's pouring this into him. And he's being raised not only as a prince of Egypt, but as a follower of the living God. And so in verse 24, when he comes to years, in other words, when he's come to the place where he's become an adult, And now he makes a decision. It says that he refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why did he refuse that? Because he knew who he was. And how did he know who he was? He knew who he was because God made sure his mother was in his life. Isn't that amazing? 
He could have been the Pharaoh of Egypt. He was in a position to rule the greatest nation during that time. And yet, but God made sure that he knew who he was and that he would walk faithfully according to the identity that God had placed in him. You know, it's kind of an encouragement as parents when we raise our kids. The Bible says in Proverbs, you know, if we train up our child in the way they should go, when they're older, they will not depart from it. If we instill who God is into them at an early age, if we tell them the beauty of Christ, if we share with them the miracles of God, if we pour into them the word of life, when they come to that place where they make their decisions, they are now adults, they are no longer under our covering, the word of God tells us they will not depart from the path. It's like this. If I take my son Elijah and I say, hey, if you want to get to downtown, uh, you want to take 45 right? You want to travel 45. You don't want to take uh, I-10. You don't want to take this other path, but you want to travel 45. And and every day I take him to the free when I say, if you want to get downtown, you take 45. This is the way you go and you go north, son. And I do that over and over and over again. And finally, there comes a day where like, okay, you're on your own. What have I drilled into him? What have I instilled into him? It's like, oh, if I want to get downtown, my father said I need to take 45. And so it is when we raise our kids, when we instill God's word into them, when the word of God becomes a light unto their path, a lamp unto their feet, then we have that assurance that when we can't be there with them to guide them, that God is. Because his word will not come back void. The word of God, that seed planted in our heart, will yield fruit. Turn with me to um, Mark chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. There's a passage there I want to, um, want to share with you. But before I get into that, I want you to see something right here. Um, that word uh, where it says, he chose, in verse 25, to suffer affliction. He chose to suffer affliction. What does that mean to suffer affliction? In English, it's two words. In, in Greek, it's one word. You know, I was going to pronounce it, but I'm, I thought better of that. Um, it's just one word in Greek. And what does it mean? It means to be ill-treated in company with. Did you catch that? In company with. It means to share persecutions. It means to come into a fellowship of ills. So when he says, when we see this word, when we see suffer afflictions, sometimes we think of suffering afflictions uh, by ourselves. No, this word is implying that someone comes along and they say, you know what? I see you suffering and I will suffer with you. I see what you're going through and I will share in those persecutions. I will share in this fellowship of ills. And you know what we're doing when we're praying for Afghanistan? You know, as our hearts are going towards them, we are sharing in their persecution. We are sharing in their discomfort. And what's it, God? We should be that way with everyone. The Bible says that the, the knees that are weak, we are to make them strong. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are to mourn with those who mourn. Uh, the, the life of a Christian is a life of fellowship. 
It's a life of shared joy. It's a life of shared discomfort. It's a life of, of shared glory in God. It's a life of weeping and tears as we walk through this life together. And so when we talk about this, Moses chose to suffer afflictions. He chose to be treated just as his people were being treated. He chose to share in their persecutions. He chose to come into fellowship with their ills. And Jesus came to this earth and he chose to suffer with us. He chose to be tempted as we are tempted. He chose to go through the agony of bearing sin upon himself just as we bear our sins. And he even chose to find himself at a place where the father has turned his face away so that we did not have to experience that. Moses associated himself with the lowly. He associated himself with the slave, the downtrodden, the misused, the forgotten. Think about this. He is the prince of Egypt, and yet he chose to identify with the slaves of Egypt. When we talk about this, there's an encouragement in shared suffering. We can strengthen each other to endure. There's a powerful benefit uh, and a beautiful benefit. We think about, just think about common activities that we have, team sports or, or long distance running with other people. Or um, Mark is a uh, avid uh, uh, what is it, Peloton rider and the encouragement that comes from that. You know, uh, as people are encouraging you, when you find that encouragement, it strengthens you and allows you to make the goal. You, you can reach the goal if you have people cheering you on who are also suffering just as you're suffering. Whatever it is, basic training, weightlifting, whatever. And so that's why we have instructions in Hebrews chapter 10, the chapter before, that says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting our meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And of course, I can't help but think of those who are by themselves. We may look at them and say, you know what, they are suffering by themselves. They are going through trials by themselves. But I want to encourage you because even when it seems like we are physically by ourselves, we're never by ourselves because the Lord is always near. He visits us in our times of despair. And like Elijah, he strengthens us when the journey is too long and too hard for us to endure in our own strength. And like Paul, he stands with us when we feel abandoned. And like Stephen, he rises to greet us and usher us into his rest, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. But going back, Mark chapter 8, this is what we need to understand. This is foundational to what Moses did. Jesus says, when he called the people unto him with his disciples, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel is the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And there it is right there. Ultimately, when we are choosing, like Moses chose, to reject Egypt, we are choosing to embrace the Lord. But we have to understand it comes with a cost. And what does that cost? That cost is picking up our cross and following him. 
but there's a reward, there is a blessing, because if we are not ashamed to stand up for the name of Jesus Christ, if we're not ashamed to confess him before the sinful generation, he will not be ashamed to say that this is my child in the presence of his father. And so Moses gives us an example of what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 8. Moses refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refuses all the privileges that come with that. He chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Of course, it says pleasures of sin because sin is pleasurable, but sin will lead to death. Sin will lead to our being cut off. It will lead to our separation from the Lord. And so the thing that we enjoy temporarily also then becomes an eternal curse to us. But the flip side is true. The pain that we go through temporarily will lead to eternal joy in the presence of the Lord. It says in verse 26, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in heaven, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He looked to a reward that he could not see. And remember, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. He, rather than looking upon the treasures of Egypt, the treasures of this world, the treasures uh, that he could have, the glory, uh, the fame, the power, the prestige, rather than looking to those things, he looked for something else. He looked for something to come. And so therefore, Moses rejected the call of Egypt. That takes us to our next section, verse 27. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And so we look at that word forsook. I'll actually try to pronounce this one. Catalipo, leave behind, depart from. It means to be abandoned, to be forsaken. It speaks of those who sail past a place without stopping. Get that image in your mind. You're in a boat, you're you're passing by, there's a port, uh, there's a place that you could stop, but you have another destination in mind. And that's what the Bible's trying to communicate to us. Moses, what he did was he, he saw this beautiful port, this port of Egypt where there were temporary pleasures, there were temporary fame, uh, there was glory to be had, but yet his eyes were fixed on another destination. You see, he left Egypt. We know he left Egypt after he uh, slayed an Egyptian uh, uh, overseer. And he tried to bury him in the sand. And, and then the next day it says that uh, two Hebrews were fighting. And he's like, brothers, brothers, why are you, why are you doing this? And then one of the uh, Hebrews says, are you, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And so Moses heard that and he was fearful. And so he fled for his life. And the king found out about it because he was like, surely the king knows now. But I want you to understand That's not when he left Egypt. That's not the moment he left Egypt. The moment he left Egypt as a young man was when he realized in his heart, going all the way back to the previous verses, when he realized in his heart his true identity, that he was not an Egyptian, but that he was a child of Abraham. That is the moment he left Egypt. He left Egypt in his heart first, and then he left with his feet. And so what we have to understand, what I'm trying to get at is that we have to make up our minds first who we are. 
We have to make it up in our hearts first who we are. Before we ever leave this earth, right, we have to come to a place where we decide we are either going to be a child of the world or we're going to be a child of the Lord. And so that decision has to come here. First here in our hearts, in our minds, we have to say, Jesus, you are my savior. You are my king. You are my Lord. And I am not a citizen of this world. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter two. He says that we who were once foreigners have now been made citizens of the kingdom. We who were once uh, uh, orphans, we have now been adopted. We have been grafted in Romans chapter 10. So we have to determine who we are. Are we children of the world or are we children of the living king? So Moses saw first in his heart, I am not a prince of this nation. You see, because there is a folly in trusting the permanence of this world. Uh, sometimes we, we, we think uh, we, we, if we're not careful, we fall into the trap of uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism basically says that the universe and the world and everything that we see has always existed and will always exist. There will never be an end to it. And so we look at our great nation, which we live in a great nation, and we think that this is a nation that will reign forever. And that one day when Jesus comes back, he's going to reign from Washington, D.C., the White House. By the way, um, just just to give you a spoiler alert, he's actually going to reign from Jerusalem, so... Israel will then become the prominent nation in the world, but that's okay. We'll we'll all see that together at some point. Um, But we kind of think, we look at things like, oh, you know, Paris, Paris is so beautiful. You know, I want to go there. I want to go to Paris. And like, no, God's going to create a new heaven, but he's also going to create a new earth. The things around us are going to pass away. God is going to do something completely new. And so it's folly for us to hold on to the things of this life as if they will last forever. We were not made for this place for eternity. Abraham looked at his life and he considered himself a sojourner. What does that mean? He considered himself just, hey, I'm just passing through. I'm just here temporarily. I got a better place that I'm heading to. And we have to look at life the same way. Otherwise, if we don't, do you remember the parable of the seed that fell? You had the seed that fell by the wayside. You had the seed that fell into the good soil. You guys remember that parable, right? And you remember that parable where it talks about how uh, the weeds or the tares sprung up with the good seed? And it says that as it was growing, Jesus gives the interpretation. He says that the the tares represent the cares of life. And they choked out God's word. And to be sure, we are called to occupy. We are called to uh, go and work and provide for ourselves, provide for our families. Uh, We are called to be good citizens. Uh, We are called to, when we have the opportunity to vote, we are called to exercise that right to vote as God has given us that privilege in this nation. We are called to be uh, good citizens in the community, be good neighbors. Uh, We're called to have fun, have some, you know, college football is about to start, so y'all pray for me. All right? No one else gets that. (laughs) Okay. You know, we're called to enjoy the things of life, but we're not called to hold on to them. We're not called to build our life upon those things. We're not called to allow those things to become our foundation. Because inevitably, the Lord will come and he will shake those things up. 
And if our foundation is built on anything else other than Christ, guess what's going to happen to us? Right? Whatever we build, if it's not on Christ, it's going to fall apart. So Moses builds his foundation on the invisible God. Not on the visible Pharaoh, but the invisible God. Moses builds his foundation not on the temporal reward, but the eternal glory to come. We cannot trust in the permanence of this world because God tells us through his word that he will redo things. He will bring about a new heaven. He will bring about a new earth. And so we have to ask ourselves this question right now. Is there anything of this world apart from Jesus that's acting as an anchor for you? Is there anything other than the Lord that is holding you down, that's anchoring you? Are you ready to abandon this world? You say, yeah, I'm ready to abandon the sin of this world. Okay, are you ready to abandon this nation? Are you ready? Are you looking for the kingdom of God to come? Are you tightly holding on to this world or are you holding it loosely? Corey Tim Boom was very famous for saying things like that. She talked about holding on to things loosely, and she was a woman who could speak from experience, having seen her father and her sister uh, die at the hands of Nazis during World War II as they were rescuing and saving Jewish people. They were putting them in their homes, um, hiding them from the Gestapo and the SS. Uh, In fact, her her famous book, A Quiet Place, uh, speaks about that account. But she often talked about holding things loosely in this world. And we have to be ready to do that. We have to understand that God has not called us to grip the things of this world with tightness, uh, with, with extra strength, but he's called us to hold these things loosely because one day God is going to remove us from this place and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Psalm 49, hear this all you people, listen all who live in the world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb with a harp. I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay for all can see that the wise die that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tomb will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves, verse 13 of Psalm 49, and of their followers who approve their sayings. They are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd, but the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their house increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed and people praise you when you prosper. They will join those who have gone before them, who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like beasts that perish. Romans 12 verse 2, or 12 verse 1. Do not be 
conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not allow this world's thinking to cause you to look at this life as something that is permanent. This world is not our home. We said that last Sunday. We are called to be sojourners. We're called to be passing through. And as we pass through, we are given the opportunity to bring with us as many people as we possibly can. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, which speaks of Abraham, says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And finally, to close out this particular section, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 8, Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day. What day? That is the day of judgment, the day of um, reconciliation, the day where God calls all those that are his to himself. And he says, not only to me, but to all those who also love his appearing. Think about this, getting back to the original question. If you are finding yourself more concerned or caring more for the things of this world and not really anticipating the appearance of the Lord. I'm not trying to not trying to bash you here. But we need to get ourselves to a place where we are looking for the return of the Lord. We need to love his appearing. And you know, that does several things. When we love the appearing of Christ, we are looking forward to him coming back. Uh, not only does that say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm not looking to this world. I'm not holding on to this world. I'm not, uh, I'm not in love with the things of this world. I'm in love with what God is going to bring. I'm looking forward to being in his presence, to seeing him face to face. But it also should stir something up in us because, like, oh, wait a second. If God is coming back, if he's keeping that promise, what other promises will he keep? He will also keep the promise that we see where those who are not found written in the book of life, they will be cast into the lake of fire. If we are anticipating that day, if we're anticipating the coming of the Lord, then it should also bring with us an understanding that the wrath of God is also coming. Because the word of God says that he is a consuming fire. And so therefore, as we are anticipating the coming of the Lord, it should be, hey, my father is sending his son very soon. Do you want to come with me? Do you want to meet him? Do you want to have a relationship with him? You see, it should motivate us to let our light so shine that men may see our good works and glorify a father in heaven. Because we know what they don't know. We're like the person that keeps the lighthouse. We know the storms are coming. And we should be warning those. We should be witnessing. We should be living our lives in such a way that gives glory to the Lord. Revelation 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. So that takes us to our last section, verse 28. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch him. And so, um, again, coming back to this, kind of thinking about what was happening here, um, you can, this starts in Exodus chapter 11, where God warns Moses and says, hey, this is what's about to happen. But we see it fulfilled in Exodus chapter 12. Um, we see how the preparation uh, goes into effect for uh, the lamb. They are to take a lamb, and it is to be, it could either be a lamb of, um, it, it's, I think it says it could either be a, a ram's lamb or a, a sheep's lamb. But it's, it's going to be a lamb, and they take this, this young animal, 
And on the 10th day, uh, the 10th day of, oh, what was the month? I forgot. what. Uh, I think the 10th day of Av, uh, which begins basically is in the springtime. They are to take this lamb and they are to allow this lamb to live in their house with them for four days. And on the 14th day, they are to take that lamb and they are to slit its throat. And they are to allow all the blood to drain out. And they are then to cook the lamb. They are to roast the lamb. They can't boil the lamb. They can't eat it raw. They are to roast the lamb completely. And uh, they are to roast the lamb with their, uh, with their uh, pants or with their, what do you call it? Uh, what did they wear back then? Um, help me out here. Ropes, thank you. Uh, with their ropes, <laughs> sorry, tucked in between their belts, given the impression of at any moment they could run, that they have to leave. Um, and so they are to do that with everything prepared for them to leave at any moment. And so they roast this lamb, they eat of this lamb, and in the morning, if there's anything left, they are ordered to burn the lamb completely. It is to be completely consumed with fire. And so this lamb, what we see, obviously, is that this lamb, the sacrifice this lamb gives, is an all-consuming sacrifice. The lamb gives everything. The lamb gives its blood, the lamb gives its meat, the lamb is completely consumed, entrails and all, everything. And if it's not consumed by by being eaten, it's consumed by fire. And so in Jesus, of course, we see that he is the lamb of God. He is completely consumed uh, so that our sins will not completely consume us. And again, this is a lamb. It's a spotless lamb. There's no... no, um, There's nothing bad about this lamb. Um, It's not an unfamiliar lamb because it's a lamb that they live with for four days. um, And it's an innocent lamb. There's nothing bad about it. And so Moses, it took faith for him to warn the people that God's judgment was coming. It took faith for him to say, hey, look, this is how we are to um, appease the Lord. We are to kill an animal, an innocent animal. We are to take its blood. We are to sprinkle it on the doorpost of our homes. And when the angel of death comes and he sees the blood, he has promised, God has promised, that the angel of death will pass over. This lamb that they grew to love and cherish in four days. You know, this, this lamb that their children played with. This lamb that brought joy and laughter in the midst of this dark time. This lamb is the animal that receives this harsh, harsh punishment. So much so that nothing of it remains. Again, as Moses makes this decision... As Moses communicates this to the people, this was an act of faith, an act of trust that this was the way that God had set apart or set aside how he was going to deliver them. Uh, And that uh, this was the means by which God had set in a place by which they would be delivered from death. Um, We see that this lamb or this, this punishment was not designed for all of them, but it was designed for Pharaoh just as Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that the everlasting fire is not prepared for us. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, Moses says, or Moses communicates to the people through the Lord, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We have a plague that's coming. 
We have a plague that is brought about by the sin of this world. We have a plague that is brought about by God's judgment upon sin in this world. But yet we can rest under the blood of the lamb and know that that which was meant for us, that which was deserving of our sins, which is death, will pass over us. And we will enjoy fellowship. Jesus has given himself all of himself fully for our salvation. So as we, as we close, just want to read this last part of um, Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. As we think about what we've talked about, uh, first of all, we need to understand that we need to set our heart and our soul on seeking the Lord. We need to make up our minds that we are going to seek the Lord first. We need to remember, as Paul said in Colossians, that we are raised with Christ. So we should strive for the things above where the Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father. We are to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. In Matthew chapter 7, it says that we are to enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So uh, wrapping this up, pro-choice, examples in the life of Moses of a faith of choice. Uh, number one, we see a choice of life. Number two, we saw a choice of self-identification. Number three, we saw a choice of abandonment. And number four, we saw a choice of trusting in God's Lamb, Yeshua, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you, Father that you have given us your lamb. And Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. But Lord, you've given us the ability to make choices in life, and these are choices either that can be according to our own understanding, or they could be choices according to walking and trusting and believing by faith that you are leading us and guiding us. We saw Amram and Jochebed, Lord God, they made a choice for life. Uh, we saw Moses make a choice of self-identification. He chose to be associated with Christ. And we saw Moses making a choice to abandon the things of the world. And so, Lord, help us, Lord, daily to make these choices by faith. And so, Lord, we thank you, Lord. Uh, I just pray for anyone right now who maybe you've not made a choice for Jesus. And he's speaking to you right now. And you can either be here or you can be watching online. Uh, you're hearing this and you're, you're saying, man, you know, I would never make those choices. But, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. And you're saying, uh, you're hearing God say, hey, I, I'm here for you. There is wrath to come. I want to save you from that. I want my blood to cover you so that when my father looks down, he sees that you are no longer covered by your own righteousness, but you're covered by my blood He's speaking to you right now. And I pray wherever you are, that you would open your heart, that you would choose to trust in the Lord. Because the time is short. We're not promised 50 more years. We're not promised another 100 years. We're not promised any of these things. 
The word of God says, today when you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. And I pray by faith that you are hearing the voice of the Lord right now. And so would you open your heart? The book of Revelation says that he, he says, behold, I knock on the door. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He's knocking on the door of your mind. He's trying to get through. But he's not going to break that door down. You have to invite him in. And so I pray that by faith, you will invite the Lord Jesus into your life and that you will put him on the throne of your life and no one else. Lord, we thank you for this person or persons. May it be your will. May your will be done, Lord. We pray that they would trust you with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the addition of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So everybody, I pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And may his peace, uh, his supernatural peace that uh, goes beyond comprehension as you look upon the things that are happening in this world, uh, may that peace be your secure foundation. May that peace guide you through decisions that you have to make throughout the week. 